Lord's Day number nine, Who is God the Father, is the title that I give to it. We have been looking at what is our only comfort, that we are known by God, what is the, our belief, what is the Trinity, and now we begin to unravel the Apostles' Creed, which, if you're not familiar with it, it's on page 33 of your book, and it goes this way. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And sometimes they put on their amen. That signifies people that can sit down. When you say amen, you're, you're finished. Notice how I read it. I paused at the commas and the semicolons. You know how a lot of churches read it? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Amen. They never really think about what they're reading and saying. Confessions and the Apostles' Creed, you are meant to pause and think. It's like that little word in the Psalms, Sila. Sila means musical interlude. It means the band plays, and while the band plays, you sit there and think about what you just read. So when you're reading through a psalm, you hit Sila, you go, pause, meditate. Same thing. Now, the test of what I just said will be during the worship service when we hit the Nicene Creed. Because it too, I know. I know, you got it. We have to teach ourselves to pause. The Nicene Creed, too, has commas and semicolons. It even has a period periodically. So, that's the way in which you read the creeds. And what we are starting on the Lord's Day 9 is the first of the three sections of the creed. Section on the Father, section on the Son, section on the Holy Spirit. Um, there is a truism of the Christian faith is that we become what we worship. And therefore it is vital that we know what we worship or who we worship. If you're worshiping a false image of God, you're not worshiping God. And there are a lot of false images of God out there. The man upstairs, the man is a uh, a grandfatherly type. That's the images we have. We have to take the time to learn who is the true God and the worship, we have to worship the God who is revealed in the word of God for that is the only way we really get to know him. We can know him from creation but the sure and certain way is from the word of God. That's what Jesus, that's part of what Jesus meant when he said worship in spirit and truth. When he said it. So, this question, 
Question 26, which is the one we are going to spend all of our time on today. The question is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, <gasps> maker of heaven and earth? You notice you've got to pause, right? Notice how it starts. I, personal, me, which is different from the Nicene Creed, which starts with the word we. Because we, the Nicene Creed, was meant to be a statement of faith for the body of Christ. It was developed out of conflict, uh, heresy, and it was meant as a statement for the whole body. Now, as a statement for the whole body, you could say we and have scruples about part of it, but still be able to say it. But when you say the Apostles' Creed and you start by saying I, that makes it personal. In other words, you have to know it and you have to believe every part of it. The way in which the Apostles' Creed was used at the very beginning was as a baptismal formula. For a whole year, those who were coming out of a pagan background or even a Jewish background studied the Apostles' Creed, every parts of it. And you can take a big sigh of relief because we're not going to take a whole year to study it because you all have more biblical knowledge than they did. But when it came time for their baptism, they stood up and said, I believe in, and they recited the Apostles' Creed. And they had to affirm every jot and tittle of the creed. It makes it personal. It says, this is what you actually believe. Therefore, if when we're done with this, you can't say, I believe in one part of it, then you just leave out the word I, or you leave out the creed. See, that's the training that this creed gives to us. I believe. And belief is a faith which fills the mind and grasps the heart. Some look at faith as simply as something that fills the mind. I get enough knowledge about who God is and who is Christ and salvation in the Bible. And therefore, I think that I have believed no, you just got enough knowledge. It not only fills the mind, it grasps the heart. It holds on and it, 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 it's you know, like your hands. It just goes boom to the very core of who you are. And you say, this is mine. I not only know it, but I am married to this. This is so important to me that I would give up everything and not deny it. That's what belief is all about. In God, the diversity and the prime roles of God. Again, the creed is in the three parts of the Trinity, and let's remind ourselves about the Trinity. Three facts about the Trinity. One, there is only one God. That's his being. Second, there are three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Third, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct persons within the one Godhead. And as I mentioned last week, I had a fourth one, you're not that God. Okay, just a reminder, <laughs> you're not that God. So what the creed demonstrates in its layout is not merely the divinity of each member, but each member's primary role. 
There's called an economy to the work of the Trinity. Um, it's called ontological unity, but economic subordination. That is, there's a measure or a um, ordering of the activities that they are equal in being. That's the, the, the ontological part. But they have a subordinate role in the fullness. For, for example, in creation, in creation the Father spoke. The Son stimulated and made it. The Spirit sustains it. In redemption, it's the same thing. The Father planned it from all eternity, from Ephesians 1, 3. Before all eternity, God planned. The Father planned. The Son procures. He is the one who bought our salvation. Again, not simply the cross or the resurrection, but by his incarnation and a life of perfect ministry without sin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice. And then after the resurrection is the ascension, which we will celebrate today, right? Because this is Ascension Sunday. It's in his ascension. He took what he did here on earth and took it up to the Father and say, here it is. Now we can fully save, redeem those whom you have planned for. And then the Spirit produces that salvation in us from re creating us regeneration to giving us the gift of faith to giving us to convicting of us our, of our sins and doing all of his work it is a spirit that does that that's the economy the way in which they operate and so in the tree in the in the uh, creed we are taking a look at three different ways in which the one god and the three persons operates how the father operates how the son operates how the Holy Spirit operates. That may solve for you the question, well, I understand Father being almighty and Son and the, goes through his history. But when you get to the Holy Spirit, why does it talk about communion of saints and the Catholic Church and the resurrection of the body? Because that's the work of the Spirit. That's what he's producing because of his, because uh, of the work of the Son. So we get to the answer. Eventually, we get to the answer. Ah, there. The answer is in several parts, and we'll look at six different parts of it. First of all, the Father is eternal. If you look at the answer on page 35 of your book, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? That the eternal, that is the unending, the one who always exists, and this, the verse that goes with that is Psalm 91 to 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that word everlasting means the vanishing point leading to eternity. That is, if we started here this day, from everlasting going back would be from here all the way to the vanishing point of the horizon, which would be eternal. Or if we started here and we go this way, it goes to the van vanishing point of the future, and it's eternal. 
And it's in that that we have the, uh, the idea of eternal. Or, for instance, the second word, Father. This is a word that we are most familiar with in the New Testament, but it is also the word that is used in the Old Testament. Not very often, but periodically. So I've given you a couple verses for it. Deuteronomy 32.6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? And this is Moses reminding the people of Israel before they would move into the promised land that the God whom they are worshiping is not their father Abraham, but is the father of the father Abraham, that is the Lord God. Yahweh, a word which means I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. A word, the name and the title of God that expresses his eternality. That he never runs out. He never can be eliminated. And that he is the one who is the father. Or from Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Uh, first of all, it's the image of the father who shows compassion. Really counters an image that people have of the Old Testament God as a mean rascal. Who just wants to beat people over the head. Now they're saying he's a father who shows compassion to his children. You know what happens when a small child falls down and starts crying. All the women and mothers go, ah! and all the dads show compassion. Get up and get going. <laughs> I mean, that's compassion because I'm, I'm not going to let you sit there and stew in, in, because you fell down. Unless I see a bone protruding from your leg, you're going to get up and walk. Now, the idea, that's, that's part of what compassion is. And that's a father shows compassion Someone in that way. And that's what the Lord did to his people over and over again before Christ. Or Isaiah 63, 16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Again, a reference to God. And in the English Standard Version, it's capitalized. To show that it's talking about God, the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Uh, even if we don't acknowledge it, you're still our Father. You're our Redeemer, the one who has bought us for your name, for the sake of your name. And he, Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Again, God saying, you are my child, Israel. I called you out of Egypt. The note here is that in Matthew 2, 15, Matthew applies this to Jesus when he came back from Egypt after having gone there when Herod was looking for his head. And he said, and now he applies it. This, this is not just the country of Israel, but this is my son who is the true Israel. And in essence saying, I am his father as well. 
So you have that sense of father in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you have two words that describe the idea of father. One is pator, a father in a paternal relationship, father to a child. Ephesians 3, 14 to 15, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you look at it, you can take it one way, that the name of your family is not a mistake. You've been given the name by the Father, the Heavenly Father. And therefore, if you don't like your name, don't come complaining to me. No, I just... (laughs) Your name, every family is named by the Father. And we bow before the Father who is of heaven and earth, of all things. God is a Father. You also have the word Abba. And Abba is not a Swedish singing group. For those over 30, you know what I'm talking about. Although Abba's coming out with a new album. Yeah. I have no idea what it's going to be like. (laughs) And if you haven't heard Abba, go to YouTube and put A-B-B-A and it'll come up. And you can listen to one song and know about everything they sang. It's all the same. Abba is an Aramaic word. So you have a Greek word and an Aramaic word of the New Testament that's a familiar, intimate name for the Father. It's we can, we can translate it daddy. You know, it's that word that your one-and-a-half-year-old gets up, begins to bounce around a little bit, looks up to you and says, Daddy, Daddy. Or it's that word that your 26-year-old uses when he calls you and says, Daddy, Daddy. <laughs> up until then, I was father. Now I'm daddy. Why? Because he's in trouble. Now... <laughs> it's an intimacy. It's an inti- it shows that intimacy. Uh, in fact, it got Jesus in trouble because he used that word. He said, I and the Father am one. And the, the Pharisees were going bananas. How can you, a man, say that God is your Father, is your Abba, is your Daddy? Is you're, is you're related to him in this way, that you're the same, in essence, what he was saying. And he said, that's who I am. He almost got stoned. I mean, hit by stones. There's another stone, but that's different. <laughs> See, is the ones under 30 get that one. <laughs> uh, now, some of us knew that when we were... Knew about that when we were in college, okay? Whoa. <laughs> Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. A word of intimacy. The spirit teaches you how to be intimate with the heavenly father. Number four. It says, eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing made heaven and with all that is in them. Well, I used an earlier version of the creed, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in him. 
uh, I've put together, I like alliterations, only because it helps me remember. Everybody else goes, Ugh. But I put together four names of God you'll find in the creed. And the first one is that one, progenitor. That is, he's the one who creates, from whom all things come into being, and he is the model of what it is to be a creator. Paul writing to the Corinthians in the 11th chapter, he's dealing with the gifts that he gives to the Spirit, and he's also talking about marriage, the uh, roles of husband and wife. He says there, in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 11, neither was man, excuse me, verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man was now born of woman, and all things are from God. He's using that same image of progenitor of saying, yes, gentlemen, you are the head of the house, but remember, you too had to have a mother. This is a woman that gave you birth. And the idea of progenitor is the idea that there has to be a beginning and there has to be one who starts it. However, even the one who starts it is in, in a human relationship is dependent upon the other. So, you can have a woman who's extremely fertile, but unless there's a male, her fertility means nothing. She will not produce unless she happens to be a human amoeba, and then she can produce all she wants. <laughs> but in our natural way of, of doing things, you need a male to be able to create, create a baby. It's one of the problems in China now. They have had forced abortions for female uh, babies. And because of that, there are 30 million more men than there are women and they can't find enough wives for these men. They build a house or an apartment in desiring to have children, but there are no wives, no women to have wives. And there are a whole bunch of couples who are going without grandchildren because of that. And it's all because of trying to set up this uh, social experiment. Same thing as in India was going on. So you need a progenitor. He creates ex nihilo. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are uh, visible. That is, God spoke, it popped into being. The Father said, light be, the Son produced it, the Spirit sustains it. The idea of their economy of roles as well. And it's not something we believe without credulity, without reason. We can believe that God created the world because there are, there's evidence. For instance, uh, 
material is not eternal. It doesn't have a beginning and end. Or it has a beginning and end. It doesn't just exist in and of itself. In fact, if you let this building go and you never did anything to it, within a matter of a few years, it would disintegrate. Because material has no eternity. Nor is material self-created. That's a preposterous claim. How can something be self-created? Non-existence and then say, Pooh, I am. It makes no sense at all. And therefore, you, there must be an outside person. And you say person because the world has a design. Therefore, it has to be someone who has mind and ability and thinks and can put things together. It must be an outside person who created it. And that is why we understand the universe was created by the Word of God. Okay. Acts 17, 24, 25. Paul speaking to the Athenians those great philosophers and saying the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to and underline all mankind life and breath and everything. He just doesn't give it to a few. All mankind have it. Even the person who doesn't know him, or even the person who knows about him but rejects him, his life and everything that he has comes from him. He made all things and everything in it. Thus says the Lord, the God who created the heavens and stretched them out. I mean, I like that idea. Created, stretched them out. It's kind of like a big tent. Okay. Who spread out the earth and all that comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Everything that comes, that is, comes from the Lord. He created all things. He created space. Three dimensions that we can see. What? Height, length, and depth. He created that. Beforehand... It was just him, and he's a spirit, and therefore there was no space. Before that, there was no time, one moment after another in succession. And these things are kind of difficult for us to comprehend fully because we live in space and time, and we can't escape it. Even talking about time it has to be done in sequential seconds, unless you're Yoda. And then you can say also, no, even in time, you say it in a sequential way, and we live in space, and that. The schedule of events and seasons, fall, winter, spring, summer, he created them. Read your, your Bible, Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything, and he has created every moment. It is no accident that you were created in either the late 20th or the early 21st century. He says, why couldn't I have been there in the time of Jesus? Because you would have been one of the persons to pick up the stone and throw it at him. That's why. You have all the advantages of our day and age. Why can't I go back to the pilgrims? You know what? how bad it was when the pilgrims came here? They had no air conditioning. How did they ever exist without air conditioning? Atlanta, 
Georgia never grew until air conditioning came. You have events and seasons. He created all spiritual beings. That's why in Job 1, even the devil has to come and report to God. It's not yin and yang. It's not an equal spiritual force. He is one who has to report back to his creator. And only the creator can allow him to do what needs to be done. So he said, you know, well, look at your, your servant, Job. You know the only reason you ser he serves you? He's got all that stuff you gave to him. Well, take it away. And he still praises him. The only reason he's praying because he's got his health. Well, take it away. And he still praises him, you see. Even the, the enemy of God has to come to him. Well, it's one of the most comforting ideas when you're in spiritual warfare. Hold it. You know, Satan, what's the phrase? If Satan tells you about your sin, you tell him about his future. Because that's what you need, he needs to hear what takes place. Life, whatever form life may be, uh, from the amoeba and even smaller than that to human beings, he creates it all. You were created by God. You were knit together in your mother's womb. Your DNA is not an accident. Your, your sex is not an accident. Everything about it is because God created you that way. I have two bad knees. One's got placed and one's getting replaced. It's the reason I use this stool. That was not an accident. God knew when I hit 67, almost 68, son, you're going to have to have your knee replaced. Okay, fine. This is the practical parts of it. Number five who likewise upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence. And this is, he is our protector. He is not a divine watchmaker, which is a position of the deist, which many people are this day. Even Christians are practical deists. A deist basically said God created the world, and then when he was done, he stepped back, found his barca lounger, got his mint julep, and sit there and just lets the world run on all that he has given to it. Now the bark and louser mint julep may be a little bit facetious, but he's, he has nothing to do with his world. Therefore, he can't perform miracles. It is on its own. And it runs like a watch, sometimes well, sometimes poorly. He is not that. And we are can be Christian deists when we believe in God and yet we do not believe that he is working in our life to accomplish what he wants to do. And we act day by day as if God did not exist or is not interested or will not intervene in who we are. That's the Christian deist. Not a good thing to be. He's constantly overseeing what he creates. Like the spirit in Genesis 1-2 who hovered over the chaos and when God spoke, put it into order, God consistently oversees and takes care of what he created. 
Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I don't know. How, how many of you got a good night's sleep last night? You realize God was watching you the whole time? He never closes his eyes if he had eyes. He never took, a, he never yawns. He created this whole universe and when he rested it wasn't because he was sweaty and tired. He simply sat back and said, this is very good. And that's what he does all the time. It, this whole world operates according to his plan in his timetable and he looks at it and says, this is very good. And all the time we're down here going, what do you mean it's very good? <laughs> okay. He is the one who never slumbers or sleep. Third, he is a provider. And that has to do with his eternal counsel. All that is, and I probably should be, all that is, is planned. Before he ever had the spirits hovering, before he ever said light be, he had everything down, everything planned. Everything, every second, every star, every moment, every decade. It was already planned. And he didn't need a piece of paper to write it down. It was all up here in his mind. Therefore, everything works out according to what he wants. At just the right time, God sent his son into the world. Where Greece had given it a common language, where Roman had, Rome had given it roads and safety, where there was just the right opportunity. All the, all the prophecies of the Old Testament were going to be filled, and just at that time, Jesus was sent. And he knew about it before he ever said, let there be light. That's the eternal counsel. All of all which is purposefully made. We used to wonder why we have an appendix. And so if it got inflamed, they wouldn't try to, or tonsils, the other one. They would cut out the appendix or they would cut out the tonsils, sometimes even before they became inflamed. And then all of a sudden we realize there's a medicinal, medicinal benefit to the tonsils. And they're less reluctant to cut it out. The appendix you keep in until it's ready to burst. But there's a reason for it. There is even a reason for the duckbill platypus. Now, there is a reason why the duckbill platypus is in Australia. But there is a reason for that animal. And you look at it, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. It looks like four or five animals all put into one. But again, maybe that's the creativeness of God where he can take parts of different animals, put them together, and they work. Okay? Or the alligators in Australia like to eat them. <laughs> maybe that's a reason. I don't know. 
Psalm 104, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. That whole passage on, in Psalm uh, 104 from 10 to 30 is talking how he provides for all the animals. And we remember Jesus' words. If he provides for the birds and the flowers, will he not also provide for you? He opens his hand. What a beautiful illustration. Tally the wonder dog likes to do tricks because at the, at the end of the tricks is a treat. And sometimes we throw it and sometimes we just put it in our hand and she licks it up before we close our hand. It's exactly what God does. He opens his hand and they are filled with good things. Note, and I say this, God is not a male. All the images of God are father, son, spirit is a more neutral one, but they're all male images. And in our day and age, that has really caused uh, problems, especially with the feminist movement. Well, you Christians think God is a man. No, God is a spirit. He reveals himself in male characteristics, but he also reveals himself with a motherly side. Psalm 49.5, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have comp no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. One of the hardships of Mother's Day is have a mother that's forgotten you to whom you cannot go and really wish Happy Mother's Day because as far as you're concerned, you do not live. Even a nursing mother can forget a child. However, God is like a nursing mother who cannot forget the child that he has produced. So why does he use male categories? Well, to stoop to our ability to understand. There are secret things of the Lord that we cannot understand. There's part of who he is that we, our minds cannot comprehend. And therefore he speaks, as John Calvin likes to say, in baby talk. You know, when my grandkids come, I don't use big theological words. Like propitiation and expiation. I don't pull out the theological dictionary and get those 20-syllable 20, 20 words that are in there because they would have no idea what I'm talking about. I don't think they know what I talk about anyway. <laughs> However, when God has to talk to us, sometimes he has to reveal himself in such a way that we can understand. We understand maleness. We understand what it is to be someone who's a progenitor, that is, a creator. Someone who is a provider. Someone who is a protector. Someone who watches over us. And those are the images that we can take in and understand. So he reveals himself that way. And it is a different image than what he wants as for us to understand him um, rather than in a motherly image. Although he does show that he has, I'll put it in quotes, a feminine side. There is aspects of him that come across like a nursing mother. 
Uh, it's the same thing that Paul said to the Thessalonians. I am a teacher to you, but I also was a nursing mother to you. Paul, you're a guy. How can you be a nursing mother? Uh, again, it's that kind of allegorical, il illustrative language that he's using. It's also to provide a model for a father. The best model for a father is not the one with whom you grew up because all of them were faulty. But these really give you the parameters of what it is to be a father. You created them, therefore you're responsible for them. You provide for all of their needs as best that you can. You protect them. If someone breaks in the house, you don't send your little boy to tackle them. You go after them. Okay? You are the one who is that model of a father. That's my dig for fathers on Mother's Day. Can't leave them out, otherwise they get bored. <laughs> yeah, or go to sleep. Number five. This father, and notice this, is my God and my father because of Christ, God's son. Notice the personal aspect. My God, my father. Again, this is the beauty of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of the reasons I like it, because it brings it home. You could have said, and my, th this father is the God and the Father because of Christ. No, mine. I personalize it. I have to. And this relationship results from our union with the Father's only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. And here we go back to the Gospel. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the idea of receiving is not you grabbed hold of Christ and brought him in. It is that Christ came in and you had him. That's the sense of receiving. And you became a child of God. Born of God. Not a blood or will or the will of man. And again, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And the next couple verses talk about it. And it's the spirit who cries within us, Abba, Father. In that. So what does it mean for us? And this is the last part of this of question 26. One, we are called to trust him. The uh, confession says, I trust, or the creed says, I trust God so much that I do not doubt that God will provide whatever I need for body and soul. Catch those words. So much. I, I have grasped it with my heart. I know not only have my mind filled with this knowledge, but I've grasped it with my heart to such an extent that I am absolutely certain that God will provide everything I need. Next month, rent, food for the table, payment for the automobile, not the third or fourth automobile, but the first automobile. Okay. Whatever you need. Not necessarily whatever you want. Whatever you need, He will provide. Because he is your father. When I was growing up, one of the things that led me to Christ 
was how I used to take money from my mom and dad's uh, purse or wallet. Mom had the purse, dad had the wallet to buy things. And I knew perfectly well if I had gone and asked them, they would have given me the money to buy that matchbox car I so desperately wanted and threw out a week later. Okay? Because I knew he would, and I could trust him. We do the same thing with the Lord. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. 1 Peter 5, 6, 7 is a repeat of that in the New Testament. Matthew 6, this is the one where you say, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. Uh, but uh, your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. Even before you pray, you, He knows that you need them. Second, hope. And not only trust Him, but He will turn to my good who, whatever adversity God sends me in this sad world. We know from Romans 8.28, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. The key part is for those who love God. This verse is used by people all over the place as saying, as if anybody, God will turn things into good. No, no, those who love God, who are his children. And hope is simply waiting on God while doing the work. Third, certainty. God, being almighty God, is able to do this. Who can be saved, the disciples said. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Caveat to that. There are some things it is impossible for God to do. God cannot deny his character. He cannot lie. He cannot be unfaithful. He cannot change. That would deny the basic character of who he is. But everything else, all things are possible for him. And one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 3.20, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you ask or think, according to the power that is at work within you. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forever. Y'all have just been blessed with a benediction. This is my benediction. See. More exceeding abundantly, more abundantly, far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Think of, of and ask for the most, the, the, the highest thing you can think of. God can do better than that. Again, this is not health, wealth, and prosperity. It's simply his ability to do it. And thirdly, the assurance. God, being a faithful father, desires to do it. It's one thing to have the ability. He's got the will. And he will do what he wants to do in your life. Ask and a knock. Um, the one knocks will be open. Final two, three lines. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Amazing promises. And that's what this means to us. Therefore, we should be people who have piety. Not pietistic, but piety, devotion, zeal for God because of who he is and what he does and what he's planned for us. We give him praise, worship, and prayer. We give him in pondering. Um, we are called to be people who meditate and deeply think about who he is. 
You know, I, I hear people talk about their devotions. I don't think I've heard about it in here, but other places. And they say, well, I get the daily bread. And I open it up and I get one sentence and two paragraphs about it. And I close it up and I did my devotions. Well, how's that helping you? Do. Because they're not deeply thinking about the God who is behind that one little verse. And what it really fully means. Spirituality light makes Christians light. So we are called to ponder and meditate. And that's what this ninth day, the Lord's Day, tells us about God the Father. Next week we're going to come pick up two things that the question 26 talked about, and that is the providence of God. And uh, so you, you uh, this week, read through the uh, Question 26, read it, think about the scriptures, work over it. And then next week we'll talk about how everything is under God's control, the providence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a love that will not let us go, a joy that creates within us a desire to praise you for all things because we know that for we who love you, you are working them out for our good, even when they look evil. That you are our eternal Father, and we can trust you, we can hope in you, we can be certain of you. We have the assurance that who you are and what you do, you will be and do for us. Take what has been said here, Lord, that is worthwhile, cement it into our hearts and minds. Let us meditate and grow from it. And that which is dross, burn it away, so that we may know the truth, and the truth will set us free. For we ask it in Christ's name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.